All right, thank you so much, worship team. Uh, really grateful for you guys and grateful for you guys. Thank you so much for being here this morning. And if you're listening online later, thank you for listening online later. Uh, I want to thank Chuck uh, Holt, Director of the Factory Ministries, for speaking last Sunday and taking my spot while I had one Sunday off here uh, before we run this series through to a conclusion. We are in uh, part six of a ten-part series called To Die For. This is a series in which we're saying essentially that the Christian faith is not just Sunday-altering, but should be life-altering, and we're using the book of Hebrews as our guide. So we are now six parts into what is a ten-part series. To bring you up to speed quickly on this series, um, we're saying that there's a couple movements in this. The first movement is about Jesus, understanding that he's fully God and fully man at the same time, and how we relate to him. The second movement we're in now, and this is a movement on faith. And what I said at the beginning of this thing about faith, and this is very, very important, is that with faith, it seems like such an easy, simple thing. All you take, all it takes is to believe. That's all it takes. And when something is so easy, we often don't think about how significant something simple really is. And so with faith, we've talked about two key ideas so far in the book of Hebrews. And the first one is this, that Christian faith centers on Christ. Three weeks ago, we talked about that, that if you're a Christian here this morning, if you're a Christian, you're listening online later, online later, you didn't become a Christian because of the church. You didn't become a Christian because of other Christians. If you're a Christian, you became a Christian because of Christ. Therefore, when the church fails you and when people fail you, you don't give up on what brought you to faith in the first place, that Christian faith centers on Christ and what he's done. That's where we started. Second thing is this, that faith doesn't go through the ears to the brain, but through the heart to the hands. That faith is not the same as hearing the faith. That faith is not the same as maybe that conviction. Maybe sometimes you feel it when you listen to people talk about faith and there's something in your heart that is stirred up. You're almost moved to action. You have kind of a maybe a guilty feeling or a, oh, I should do something now feeling. And you respond in your heart or your mind rightly to the gospel and the good news and the hope of Jesus Christ. And you're moved. It isn't faith yet until you do something about it. Because faith doesn't go from the ears to the brain and live up there as if it's something up there, but it moves through the hands, or through, excuse me, through, from the heart to the hands, and faith is a matter of doing something. And so we asked the question last time I was up here, and what are we ready to do now? And Chuck took that last week and just took that to another level and a great time of moving that way, right? Now this morning, we're going to talk about a third component of faith, this very simple thing. We just say, all it takes is faith to become a Christian. Yeah, all it takes is faith, but faith in what? And to what degree? And what does this really mean? This morning, with faith, I want to kind of tease out with you this idea that faith is a real identity marker for you if you call yourself a Christian. Now, that may seem, uh, you know, ethereal, so let me draw it down this way. I want to take you back in time with me to my little uh, island home of Barbados. I need to think of the sun these days, so let me take you there with me, all right? It's 95 degrees all the time. We've got sun, we've got a wind going on, we're in Barbados. I am now, let's say, nine or ten years old, little boy, um, and I'm with my mom, all right, and uh, we're on a bus. I have no idea why in the world we are on a bus, but we are. We're on some kind of bus, and here's what happened. I'm sitting there. It's a fairly full bus, and we stop, 
And the door opens, and up the steps walks an elderly lady. I'm like, hey, look at that. There's an elderly lady walking in the bus. My mom is like, hey, Timmy, give up your seat. (laughs) What? Like, yeah, let her have your seat. And I'm like, why would I do that? I mean, I, I don't know if I said that, but I will tell you, I still remember the feeling in my heart, like, why would I, like, don't adults take care of kids? Like, isn't that how it works, not the other way around? And, like, wasn't I here first? I mean, I'm not angry with the lady, but, you know, I'm, and I, we have another, like, seven minutes of a bus ride, which is forever to stand up. Like, what? Now, in my heart, that was what was going on. Now, I knew it would be more inconvenient for me to remain seated <clears throat> than to stand up. And so I stood up, and I gave this elderly lady my seat, an experience I still remember now enough to share with you and even feel the emotion of it. And I, I'm asked, like, asking mom later, why? did why? You know, why? And she said, well, that's what gentlemen do, is they give up their seat. I've come to learn that not all men do that. And, and I said, but not everybody does that. And she says, well, Roger's men do that. Okay. This is an identity thing. If you're going to grow up in the Roger's name, you're going to be a gentleman. You're going to hold the door. You're going to open the door. You're going to give up the seat. That's what you're going to do if you're going to grow up in our home. That's what men do. It's an identity piece to grow up like that. Not everybody had that. You may have had different things in your home. You grew up in different ways with different values and different shapers. But all of us have been impacted by things in our family, either for good or for bad, that have deeply impacted us. Because you are a, and fill in your last name, you do certain things. Or because you work at a company, you do certain things. Or because you go to a church, you do certain things. Or because you believe whatever, you do certain things. Now here's what I want to tell you. If you have ever, if you have ever said to somebody, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. You are taking a name. And there are certain things that go with that name that are core identities of that name. And let me make it super simple this morning on this slide. Here's one of the key things that Christians do. Christians believe. Christians believe. Very simple, but very difficult to do. If you're a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, here's what Christians do. They believe when it is super hard to believe. They believe when no one else does. They believe when everything in their world is going against them in the wrong way. Christians still believe. But not everybody does. That's right. But Christians do. Christ followers do. So if you're here this morning and you have never claimed that, you have never claimed or you're listening online later, you've never claimed that you're a Christ follower, this doesn't apply to you. You can sit here and I think here's what you would say. If you're not a Christ follower, you would say, you know what, this is true, because I wish, even as much as I might ridicule Christians, I would wish 
that they would just hold true to their beliefs and their convictions. Because even if they're wrong, I want them to be passionate about what they believe. Loving, yes, but I want them to hold true. I want to know if what they say works when it's really hard and they have no reason to believe. I want to know that they do. I want to know if Christians actually believe for real. This morning, the pastoral author to the book of Hebrews is appealing to and calling for his audience in the book of Hebrews to believe. And I'm going to tell you, it is super hard to do this. It's easy to write two words on a screen, but it is a whole different animal to do this. I want to take you to the book of Hebrews and show you what I mean. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 10 is where we're going to be hanging out. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, beginning at verse 19. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, there's one in the pew around you, and that is our gift to you. We'd be glad to have you take that home with you and uh, enjoy that uh, for you. Uh, Find the life of God in those pages, as we say here. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God and inspired by God and authoritative for life. Um, So we, we hope that you read and engage the Scriptures there, okay? Uh, The book of Hebrews is in the New Testament, the second third of your Bible. Uh, And if you're on a a tablet or device, you can just find that in the table of contents. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. The author writes here, begins, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. Now, let me pause it here quick, okay? Because what I just read in a hurry is something that uh, would have surprised the original readers. There's something here that, while we may take for granted, if you've heard this before, this would not have been taken for granted by the people who were hearing this. And here's where he begins again. Let's go back to it and just kind of walk through this. Therefore, brothers, since, look at the assumption, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Well, that's not true, actually. Like, we don't have confidence to enter the most holy place. Like the, the readers in this time are used to the Old Testament world. In the Old Testament world, you don't have confidence to enter the most holy place. You have, instead of confidence, you have fear. You have great fear. In fact, the way that the temple was set up and Old Testament worship was set up, you had the most holy place, a 15 by 15 perfectly cubed room, and then you had a curtain, a big curtain, separating the most holy place from what they called the holy place, another area in the temple. And then you had the kind of outer courts where the average person could at least look at and some could actually go to sacrifice. And so you had the outer courts where people are kind of generally welcome if they're believers and if they come to sacrifice. Then you have the temple, the inner kind of courts. And in the holy place, only a priest could go there. But then in the most holy place, only the high priest could go there and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And this is very important because the author to Hebrews is saying, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, and the hearers are like, wait a minute, no, we don't actually. We don't have any confidence. Are you kidding me? Because the stories they are told and the things that they would have experienced passed down from generation to generation is the high priest on the Day of Atonement, he's got to go through this ceremonial process to get clean. Like he's got to wash up. And then if you've ever seen... um, 
priests wash up to get clean, you wash and then you allow your hands to dry like this because you don't want to, your hands to dry like this and allow any, any dirt or grime at all to drip back down into what was clean. And so you allow gravity to take what is clean and make what's dirty clean. You don't want to risk getting yourself even more dirty, even if it just be a speck of dust. You need to be fully clean. You change your robes. You bring a special sacrifice. And then if you're a high priest on the Day of Atonement, then you bring with you burning incense to create a smoke screen between you and the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence symbolically dwelled. Because if you were to look directly on God, you would die. And if you come in impure, you would die. And if your clothing is impure, you would die. And so the priests, now imagine this for a moment in the middle of this somber thing. What the priests would do is they would take a rope. They would tie it around the waist of the high priest and let him go in with that. Because in case they hear a thump, they can drag him out. Because I'm not going to go in there to get him. the same fate would await me. And so they send in this high priest with a rope, just in case you're not as pure as you're making us look like you are, just in case things go badly for you, we're going to drag that dead body out of the most holy place. And here the author says, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Confidence from where? You've got to be kidding me. We don't have confidence. We We have what is handed down. We have fear. Of God. We don't have confidence. You've got to be kidding me. And he goes on, here's where the confidence comes from. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And that curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was this big old curtain that on the day of Jesus' death, and if you know what happened when Jesus was on the cross, you know this is what happened, that when he died, that curtain in the temple in Jerusalem was torn in two from top to bottom. History will tell us that that curtain was 60 feet high. Imagine that for a minute. 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and evidently 4 inches thick. Pretty decent curtain going on in the temple in Jerusalem. On the moment of his death, that curtain is rent or torn in two, the scriptures will tell us, torn in two as his body replaces the curtain and says, Come one, come all, with the death that I bring to you, the atonement that I bring as a sacrifice for your sins, you no longer have to bring those sacrifices to God. I have done it. It is finished. Come one, come all. This is a game changer. This is brand new. And the author writes about it as if it's been going on forever, and it hasn't been. This is new. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, and then here's what he says next. You should do verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Let's come to God. We're talking about a vertical relationship we can now have with him. We come fully believing, right? Full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, using sacrificial imagery here, that the sacrifices that were uh, used to get the worshiper ready are now used for us. And it is an incredible gift that the guilt that you and I feel over our sin 
has been taken care of by the blood of Jesus. We have been sprinkled clean with our guilty conscience. There is no sacrifice that you can make that can do what Jesus has done for you. There is no amount of penance or church attendance or obedience or memorization or prayer or anything that you can do that will clean your guilty conscience. It is only through the gift of Jesus Christ's blood for you that allows that to happen. And so he says, let's draw near to God because of that. And let us, having our bodies washed with pure water. In verse 23, let us hold unswervingly, don't veer around here, to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And now he goes from the vertical relationship to the horizontal one, to look around you at people around you. He says, now let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day, capital D, approaching. And so what's going on here is the author is saying, Because of what you've experienced before God, you now have access. Take confidence in that. And because of that, I want you to draw near to each other too. Like, Encourage one another. Think not just of your relationship with God, but think about one another. Therefore, he said, don't get in the habit like some are of stopping the meeting together. Like, Don't stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Because if you don't meet together, you can't encourage each other. Like, if you're not around the people, I can't encourage the people. So don't, don't start doing that. Don't start kind of giving up. Don't start, like, not being around the people that you should encourage. Continue to meet together and encourage and remind one another of the truth of who you are. Continue to do that and do it all the more as the day, the day approaches. The day, capital D, in the Scriptures carries the idea of the day of judgment. The day in which believers and non-believers will be judged. Some believers are judged for their actions without losing their salvation, but they're judged that way. And others are judged for whether they're believers, whether they're saved or not. There's different kinds of judgment that happen. But the author to the Hebrews is saying that the day of judgment will come. In other words, what you do will matter, will be judged at some day. And then he goes on to a heavy section. We're going to read this heavy section now. This heavy section kind of flies in the face of a Christianity that is more tame and a Christianity that can be like a hallmark version of Christianity, of which is not really complete and full within the Scriptures. This is a heavy, more sobering section right here, verses 26 to 31. And he writes this, If we deliberately, right, in light of the day, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, this section is sobering and difficult, and it's confusing. It's heavy, all right? Let me tell you what I think it means. 
Now, different people believe different things. Let me tell you what I think it means. What I think the author of Hebrews is talking about here is he's talking about Christians who at one point in their history said, I'm in. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. But over the course of time, from persecution, difficulty, or lack of seeing the good outweigh the bad in their life, for whatever reason, they have walked away from the practices of the Christian community. What we would traditionally call they've apostatized. They've walked away from the Christian faith in the sense of the practices of being Christian. If you were to ask them, are you a Christian? They might even say no. I used to go to church, but I don't any longer. But at some point in their history, they had this conviction or change of heart where they were like, man, I'm, I'm all in. This is amazing. God has done amazing things. Jesus has been very gracious to me. Like they can repeat the gospel message. They were in, and then for whatever reason, disillusioned over time, and they were among those he just wrote about who stopped attending, stopped coming, walked away from the community, and would now say, that's no longer for me. I used to be there, but I'm no longer there. And I think we all know people like that. I certainly do, and I think you probably do as well. People in a category like that. And so what is he saying about them in this situation? And here's what I believe biblically. As I take this passage and I apply it to my broader understanding of the New Testament in particular, and also the Old, here's what I see, that upon the point of salvation, when we profess faith in Jesus Christ, when we confess our sins, turn to him in faith, and he saves us, that in that moment there are so many things that happen to us upon salvation that it is impossible, in my estimation, to undo all that by simply walking away from the church or the practices of faith. In other words, let me put it this way, in, in uh, the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, Jesus talks to us, he says, I know my sheep, they know my name, and by the way, I know them. I have them in my hand. No one can snatch them out of my hand. In other parts of the New Testament, we read things like, uh, upon belief, believers are sealed by the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing an inheritance for the future. In other parts, and this one is particularly important, we read that upon salvation, believers are adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. And taking that imagery of adoption, let me ask you this, if I'm speaking a little bit. Let me go back to my bus story for my mom, for example. If when my mom says, hey, Timmy, give up your bus seat, and I say no, and then I start going ballistic on the bus, and I start yelling at her, maybe I even start cursing at her, and then I walk off the bus and I say in my anger, you were never my mom anyway. Number one, I'm in a heap of trouble and I might be dead at that point. But let's just say that I become that rebellious and I walk away from her. And I want nothing more to do with her because she would dare tell me to give up my seat for an elderly woman. Am I still her son? Of course I am. Even in my worst rebellion, I am still her son. Distanced Yes, but still a part of the family, yes. And this is what I believe happens at salvation. That when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the New Testament tells me there's so many things that happen upon that salvation that even in my greatest rebellion, I cannot become an un 
Rogers, if you will. I don't get to be out of that relationship with mom, just like I don't get out of that relationship with my heavenly father, even in the middle of my worst rebellion. But here's what I think the author is also saying. That if you want to rebel, if you want to push back, if you want to walk away out of the practices of the Christian community, he's essentially going to ask you, where else are you going to go? Like, where else are you going to find the hope of the gospel that you found here? Because the reason that you even came here, remember this? The reason that you even came to Christ in the first place is because you felt at some point along the way, this was the wisest thing to do. This is the only place where I can find grace and mercy and forgiveness. And the question is going to have to be, if you're going to reject this, where else are you going to find this? Similar to how Jesus asked his disciples when uh, in the heat of the moment when things were really maturing and ramping up in the ministry and people were really pushing on him and he said, and people, disciples started leaving because it was getting too hot. He said to some of his disciples, hey, are you, you going to leave too? People are leaving, you going to leave too? And their response was amazing. They said, where else will we find the words of eternal life than with you? Like, no, we're not going to leave. This is hard. It's getting hot. But where else are we going to go? And that is, I believe, what this author is saying that there will come a time when judgment will come. And if I were to reject my mom like that hypothetical scenario on the bus, I can expect discipline for that. But I don't lose my relationship as a son. And here's what the author continues to say. He continues to go. He's like, listen, things have been tough for you before. Remember, look, he goes, he goes with us into verse 32. He says, remember, those earlier days, you've already seen tough things, okay? You've already had your faith tested. Those earlier days, after you had received the light, after you'd become a believer, when you stood your ground in a great contest, athletic imagery here, great contest in the face of suffering, sometimes, and this is amazing, in an honor-shame culture, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Like, you were so into this that even when you weren't being insulted publicly, you saw that your brother or sister in Christ was. You went over next to them, and you associated with them because you so believed in this thing. Remember, you did this. You already had hard times. Come on, you know this. Verse 34, you sympathized with those in prison and joyfully Imagine this, joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Like for those who had been in prison for their faith, like there isn't a prison care system, there isn't a cafeteria. The only way to care for people in prison is for you to go take care of your friend in prison. If they're going to eat, it's because you're going to feed them. If they're going to be clothed, it's because you're going to go clothe them. And if they're in prison for their faith and you go feed them and you go clothe them, you are associated with them and you might be next. He said, remember, you did that. You've done this. It's been hard before. Your faith has been tested before. There have been difficult seasons, and you came through. You stood on this already. You've done this. And so in light of that, he makes this very incredible statement in verse 35. And so, do not throw away your confidence. Do not throw it away. Things are hard now. I get it. Look back. You've already been through this. Do not throw away your confidence, which harkens back to verse 19. My confidence in what? My confidence that I can come before a holy God and be given this gift through Jesus' blood on the cross. Don't throw this away. It will be richly rewarded. 
Verse 36, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous ones will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. Then he makes this statement, verse 39, which is one of the key verses in all of Hebrews. An identity verse. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who, what's that word? Believe. But of those who, what? Believe. But of those who believe and are saved. And he's pitting belief against fear. And so when I put up on the screen, Christians believe, you might think, well, sure they do, whatever. No, 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 no. Christians believe in the depth of their soul, when fear and reason for abandonment come, say, man, give it up. Christians hold and believe because we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. You want to hold the name Christian? You want to call yourself a Christian? This is what Christians do. They believe. Don't shrink back. Don't be destroyed. Don't throw away your confidence. Christians believe. I know some of you uh, are, are football fans, and many of you are not, and that's okay. I want to take you for a minute um, to a football stadium. So go with me. Even if you hate football, even if you would rather have your face run over by a steamroller than watch a football game, come with me for a minute and give me a couple minutes. Okay? Because we're going to go to a football stadium for a minute, and then we're going to come out, so you are going to be okay, even if you hate football or hate even that I'm talking about football. Just come with me for a minute. And we're going to go to Beaver Stadium in Happy Valley, Pennsylvania. All right? Woohoo. Seating for about 107,000-plus people in Beaver Stadium. We're talking Penn State football now, okay? Just give me, give me this moment here, okay? 107,000 people. We have got, of course, you... you Already know this, it's a worship service going on. It's just a different kind of worship. We've got a worship of football going on, which I get, and I'm not killing that. I'm not criticizing it. I understand that. We're just part of the, all right? So we have this big worship service going on called football. And, and Penn State, all right, they are marching down the field, and all of a sudden, man, they break a big one. All right? They break a big one, and their, their back runs, whatever, 50, 60 yards, and you feel that momentum. You are wearing one of the white-out T-shirts, man, you are on your seat because that's what you do in the game, especially when something like that happens. There's a break, there's a big play going on, and everyone starts rising, and you can kind of feel the anticipation and the safety, the deep safety for the other team takes a bad angle, and the running back kind of high steps it out of there and makes it before, and he crosses the goal line. Touchdown, Penn State, the only one for the year, so you're going to celebrate that thing, okay? You're going to celebrate that they scored a touchdown, and the whole stadium starts rocking. They got players, the big fat guys who guard the quarterback, they come chugging down the field, you know, celebrate that. 30 minutes later, they arrive. They all celebrate the football touchdown. They're in the back of the end zone celebrating. Meanwhile, because you're there, you can see all this happening at one time. The band starts playing, and they just kick into that Nittany Lions fight tune right away, whatever that is. Okay. We got, start moving. We got action over here. We got the football team over there celebrating coaches, high-fiving. You start high-fiving people you don't even know because we're all celebrating that we just scored a touchdown together. The referees get ready to tee the ball back up. They get that thing going on to, to kick off. 
And in that moment, in that moment, there's a chant that goes out throughout 107,000 people in Beaver Stadium. And it goes like this, and you know this if you ever watched a football game. We are Penn State. We are Penn State. There's this rhythm of these single-syllable words that carries throughout the stadium, so much so that it shakes the stadium. You're standing in your seat now, and you feel it. You don't just hear it, but you feel it. And you are part of this moment of celebration. The band is playing. The people are chanting, We are Penn State. And there's this little girl coming to her first game. And she's now standing on her seat because she can't see anyway. And she tugs on mom's shirt and says, What are they saying? Because she can't pick up the big noise that everybody is saying. And mom leans down and says, We are Penn State. She's like, what, is that? what does that mean? She said, you'll understand. But that girl is taking in in that moment so much into her heart and soul that she begins to think, yeah, whatever they're saying, we are Penn State. And she starts kind of chanting along. And as she keeps coming back to football games, and that moment is repeated over and over and over and over and over again, this little girl grows up to be deeply convinced we are Penn State. And even when a scandal strikes Penn State, we are Penn State. And even when we lose, we are Penn State. And even when we can't score or whatever bad happens, we are Penn State. And she begins bringing her kids 30 years later to the game. And her kids hear the same thing. And they begin to believe we are Penn State. And through the annals of time, the author of the book of Hebrews is telling us, we are believers. We are believers. This is who you are. This is who you are. This is who Christians are. Christians believe, even if the scandal goes on for years, even if the team loses every game, we are believers. And so do not give up. Do not throw away your confidence in this. We are Believers. Christians believe. You want to take the name Christian. This is what you take. Things are hard for you right now. I am sure. They've been hard. I bet they will be hard. Things are dark, tiresome, lonely. I get that. Do not let me diminish the pain of that. But do not allow the pain to take away this truth. If you are a Christ follower, please, 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 do not throw away your confidence. It never came from good times in the first place. It never came because the church was awesome. It never came because people were great. Your confidence came because Jesus Christ died on the cross, ripped that curtain in two, and now you have confidence that you never had before. 
to relate to the most holy God and to one another. Do not throw that away. We are, come on now, we are believers. That's who we are. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. So if you want to walk away for some other reason, you can do that. But here's the deal. If you grow up in the Rogers home, you give up your seat to someone else. You open doors, you hold them. You use your strength to serve other people. And if you grow up under the Christian name, Christians, believe. It's who we are. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I pray this morning for us as we sit and absorb and listen and hear and hear the appeal from the author to the book of Hebrews. Urging the original hearers, the original audience, not to give up, not to throw away their confidence because things go bad, not to go light on their faith because things are difficult, not to walk away when things just aren't working right, sometimes for years. They're not to throw away the confidence because that's not who we are. That the Christian faith has been forged in the hearts of the martyrs, the people who've shed their blood for what we say, we believe, and sometimes so coolly take for granted. Father, renew in us this morning this confidence that we can approach a holy God, a good Father, who adopts us as his children into his family. If we hold the name Christian Father, may we never lack courage, but step in with belief to do what we know we need to do, to live and believe the way we need to believe. Give us courage to do what we know we need to do and grace where we may fail. We thank you that you are a good, a good Father, and we love you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.